I want to welcome everyone to uh, Bible study this morning. Uh, we, my name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Tim. We are studying lesson number eight in uh, the Origins Quarterly. Uh, the lesson title is Jesus, Provider, and Sustainer. Let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for uh, this opportunity to come and gain uh, some more perspective uh, on the interventions that you have made for us and providing for and sustaining our world, uh, our broken world, as well as the unfallen worlds. I want to thank you for those gifts. Thank you for this day that you've given us and what it represents. Be with those of our group who are not with us and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text for Sabbath says, well, before I start, and in pre-studying for this, which I'm sure you all did, um, did anyone have any questions or comments or things that we want to you want to make sure that we don't miss? This, I, I found this lesson to be a little difficult to study for because yeah, usually when we're when we're dealing with uh, some of these lessons, there's some there's some sort of uh, some sort of controversy or some sort of debatable. Um, point that comes out across the lesson and i didn't find that today so we may be done in 20 minutes <laughs> okay <laughs> right on good to hear it in tuesday's lesson actually there's a statement um that says after all if god is in control of the creation why should such things happen that really you know ran up my spine the wrong way um, okay uh, i agree that one caught my eye too so we'll make we'll make a point to uh to get that but to begin with let's start sabbath lesson uh, the memory text says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. My first question was, what are the riches of God's glory? Anyone? Suggestions? Yes. His life and power to live a, a life of, of victory. Okay. Um, if we truly accept his life as being our life and his and his spirit, you know, that's how we can do anything. All right. Anything else? Any, any other ideas on what the riches of God's glory are and, and specifically uh, what Christ revealed about those riches? Yes, in the back. I would say the truth that he, in fact, really does love us and to put aside the lies that we tell ourselves and other people tell us about what we have to do to earn his love. Okay. That is indeed uh, a wealth of God's glory, that he is indeed love. Not just loving, but he is fully embodies everything that love is. He does what's right because it's right. Tim. Uh, to go with what he said, and when we are able to receive that love, then we have the ability to give that love. Okay. Good. <laughs> Um, specifically, what, uh, what did Christ reveal about, uh, God's glory or God, the riches of God's glory? In the gospel, he says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, um, and we needed both. Mm -hmm. We needed his grace to enable us and to give us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that's, you know, live, uh, free and, uh, I was the word, healthy, uh, to heal us. But we also need the truth, because that's what brings us to the Father, um, knowing that, that the way Jesus lived revealed the Father fully. 
Ah, good. I think that's that's very well said, and I think that's uh, that goes to the heart of what uh, what Christ specifically revealed about uh, the riches of God's glory is that if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father, and. 2,000 years later, we still have a tough time conceptualizing that. I mean, it's still, it's still difficult for, for much of Christianity and much of Adventism uh, to conceptualize that if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Yes, in the back. I think also of Jesus' methodology, and at least two of the practices he used, he healed, but then he would teach as well. Mm-hmm. Often when he healed somebody, he would then teach them, you know, go and sin no more. Uh, uh, because he wanted he wanted us to be transformed that way. Good. And, you know, to, to carry that further, uh, what, what better method to get someone's attention than to give a blind man his sight? You know, when a physician heals someone from pneumonia or from whatever disease process, he probably has their attention. And he tells them, this is the pathway to continue uh, in health. And the, the chances are very good that the patient will listen better than the physician who, who doesn't heal. Yes? I think that Christ's power was strictly sustained by his constant communication with the Father. It, absolutely. It had to be. Uh, and he offers to give us that uh, that avenue right now. Um, moving on to Sunday's lesson, uh, I want to I want to throw some numbers out at you. Um, Sunday's lesson is entitled "The Sustainer." Um, just for some consideration, uh, our Milky Way galaxy, the what's called the stellar disk, which is the the um, the majority of the Milky Way galaxy, is estimated that there is a hundred thousand light years in diameter, hundred thousand light years across. Uh, for those who are not physicists, uh, light travels at approximately one hundred eighty-six thousand miles per second, I believe, is the speed of light. Um, so, I mean, that number alone uh, floors me, 186,000 miles per second. Uh, one of the things that I do for enjoyment is I take my car to a racetrack and I drive it like I stole it. I drive it as fast as I can. And I've gotten to 135 miles an hour in the backstretch of Road Atlanta. Some higher-powered cars have gotten to 160, 165 down the backstretch of Atlanta. NASCAR drivers will routinely hit 200 miles an hour um, in tracks like Talladega and Daytona. Um, Formula One cars are capable of going faster. Um, but these are miles per hour, and we're only in, in triple digits, 186,000 miles in a second to speed of light. And it's estimated that our tiny little galaxy – it would take 100,000 100, years for a beam of light from reach from one side to the other. And it's 1,000 light years thick. 100,000 light years across, 1,000 light years thick. 
Um, for some perspective, if the Milky Way were reduced to 1,000 meters, which is roughly 10 yards short of a football field, thousand, uh, excuse me, 100 meters across, um, our solar system, which goes from you know Sun to Pluto, which just got uh, demoted from planet status, uh, would be no more than one millimeter in width. One millimeter is roughly the length of the white on my fingernail. So, width of my fingernails, our solar system football field is the, is the entire galaxy. And our Earth is a tiny little speck on the fingernail. You guys with me so far? Alternatively, if the solar system from the sun out to Pluto were the size of a U.S. quarter, then the Milky Way would be a disk approximately 2,000 kilometers in diameter, having roughly one-third the area of the United States. So we, we can't even, you know, we, we've, we've sent, you know, we sent man to the moon, which is debatable, but whatever. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> Our nearest planet is, is Mars, which is estimated it would take, what, four years to get, to get there? Four, three and a half, four years to get there? Um, so if our, if, uh, our solar system size of a quarter, the galaxy is 2,000 kilometers across. Now, <laughs> that's, that's, that's to begin with. These are some staggering numbers, but uh, hang on a second. Our observable universe, that, that means the, the universe which, you know, the stars whose light we can see, uh, is estimated to be between 10 sextillion and 1 septillion stars. That's a 10 with 22 zeros behind it. And one septillion is a 10 with 34 zeros behind it. Uh, you with me? Exactly. These are numbers well, well beyond my comprehension. Um, to be slightly more precise, uh, according to the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, by conservative estimate in the observable universe, there are order of 6 times 10 to the 22nd stars. These stars are organized in more than 80 billion galaxies, which themselves form clusters and superclusters. The approximate number, the approximate calculation of the number of atoms in the observable universe, and I don't know how in the world they, they came up with this, is uh, close to 10 to the 80th power, a 10 with 80 zeros behind it. And the creator of our world is the sustainer of all of these planets and stars and galaxies and atoms and elements and compounds. And he he ordered they put them in the sky in, in orderly orbit orbits, and we are and he gave us the privilege of observing some of these things, and he's given us understanding of some of the laws of the physics that govern these bodies, uh, I'm going to submit to you that there's far more uh, of the natural physical laws at play that we are completely unaware of. 
And this is just our observable universe. There, there are those that suggest that there's an infinitely bigger universe that we sh- we can't or haven't observed yet because the light hasn't reached our hasn't reached our eyes. And he ordered it, created it, and he sustains it. Think about it. And yet, he, he condescended to take on human form and to come here to this little speck because we were in need of life support. And we'll get into that a little bit in Monday or Tuesday's lesson. Um, Psalms, someone look up Psalms 33, verses 6 and 9, please. Someone else look up Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and yet another Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Whoever gets it first, shout it out. Okay, go ahead. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'll read that one. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. If if we believe that the universe uh, started by some uh, mystical gases getting together and a giant explosion and colossal amounts of matter were um, spread forth. Do these do these texts have a whole lot of meaning to it? I mean, if, if you come from a if you come from a concept of a Big Bang theory of the origins of the universe, or is this just fan, uh, fantasy? The idea that that God spoke and it happened. I mean, have you ever put yourself in evolutionists? Shoes. I have, and and it's it's a struggle to believe that some you know, that he spoke and, and it happened. I I do want to suggest that it takes an equal, if not greater, amount of blind faith, however, to believe in an evolutionary origin. Yes. Well, we've talked in class several times about the idea that Genesis starts with some kind of mass. Correct. And that that may have been here for a great deal of time. Mm -hmm. So, actually, 
we don't know how everything else came into being. And it quite possibly was everything else quite possibly was spoken into existence all at once, instantly. And in that case, I would consider that a very large bang. So kind of like the bumper sticker said, God spoke and bang, it happened. Well, we don't know. No, you're right. We don't. We don't know. Um, Tim. Well, I, I actually read a little bit that the originators of Big Bang were actually Christians. Yes. And, and it has evolved, so to speak. Or devolved. <laughs> to, into a premise for evolution. Uh-huh. But that this was, the original concept was more about God speaking and bang coming about. Hmm. I wasn't aware of that. Um, think about the evidences for evol- for an evolutionary origins versus not not life on Earth, but life, but you know the universe itself. Uh, think about the evidences of that, and think about the evidences of a benevolent creator. What evidence do we have for a confluence of gases? getting together in a spark and boom. I, I don't know of any, but just because I don't, I'm not well read on the subject doesn't mean that there isn't evidence. Is, is anyone familiar with it? Not, not, nothing orderly usually comes out of that. Okay. Uh, that's right where I was heading. Um, the laws of thermodynamics, specifically the second one, suggests that if a system is left to its own devices, entropy increases, entropy being chaos or confusion. Um, without energy, an external energy being put into the system, and it takes external energy to be put into the system in order for, uh, for order to be created. So that's one evidence that we have that there was some sort of an intelligent design process that, that had to had to originate things because we can we can see the order of the universe and you know we may not understand all the order we certainly look at the order of our solar system and our galaxy and see that these you know these stars move in predictable ways they behave in predictable ways according to laws that we have uh that we've been privy to uh, i think the second evidence uh for an intelligent design is that and this is more specific to life on Earth, that I, I, I'm not aware of any incidents where life has been created from non-life. Yes? But we, as Christians, the way I feel, should we believe, quote, some man's theory, or should we believe the Holy Scriptures that withstood the test of time. Well, um, the the humanists would suggest that scriptures are a nice history book and a and a an allegory, uh, you know, leading us to a certain set of conclusions, but they're not to be taken literally. According to them, I mean, it, I'm trying to get people to think out of the box that we are in. Okay. And to not only ex- not just accept scripture blindly, 
Okay, there's evidence to support Scripture. That's that's the pathway I'm hoping to to get us down. Is that there there are things that harmonize with Scripture that we have understood, we see in science, and that we can experience ourselves, and that all three of those things can can harmonize together. And we don't have to just accept that God said it. I believe it. That settles it mentality because I don't think that's where God wants us. Uh, three hands. Yes. Um, the problem with, with science and the laws of science is that they explain um, our observable universe and what we can observe already. Um, they, they explain objects in motion already. They don't explain how things came into motion. That's the problem with, with science in, ex- in explaining God, is that they can explain the... the uh, what we observe once things are already created, once things are already in motion, but the laws of physics cannot explain how something can actually come to being or how something can get into motion in the first place. And um, the, that, that's the problem when science comes to try to, to defeat God, is that science is using the wrong tools because science is observing the natural universe, and God is not a part of our natural universe. So it's um, science is really inadequate to disprove God because they're using the wrong tools. Well, I think science is inadequate to disprove God because I think God wrote many of the laws of science. I mean, he, he originated them, and he has, he has made them, he has revealed them to us. Now, he hasn't revealed them all to us. There are many, many scientific laws that... Um, that govern the operations of the life in the universe that we that are probably beyond our finite understanding right now, and maybe millennia after we're in heaven before we begin to have a concept of those laws. C.S. Lewis had a really good um, definition of this. He pictured a pool table, and you have all your you have all the balls lined up and everything, and you take the cue ball and you hit it, and science can predict where all those balls are going to go based off of force and direction of angle and everything. Science can predict how those things are going to split on that table. But, so say I'm standing next to the table and the scientist hits the ball with the exact amount of force, the exact amount of angle. They, they know what's going to happen. But I take my hand and I move all the balls around. And all of a sudden the scientist is like, all, all, his, all his equations and everything have been destroyed. Did I break the laws of physics by by messing with his experiment? No, I did not. It's just that I'm working from outside of his um, of his universe that he's working inside of, and um, it's it's like that with God as well. That um, when God's dealing with our natural universe, um, it doesn't have to be that God breaks the laws of science to work in our universe. It's that God is working from outside, you know. And we're, we're observing it from our understanding. And um, the fact that, that we might not understand everything doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. Sure. It just means that God's working from a different viewpoint than we are. Yeah, I agree. Yes, in the back. I, I don't necessarily want to take on a different tangent, but mm-hmm. to address your broader question, mm-hmm. I suspect that every one of us in this room could have a personal testimony of how our lives have been changed and transformed by coming into contact with Jesus Christ. Amen. And I believe for the natural woman and man who hasn't had that contact, that's probably an illogical thing. Yes. 
So I think our personal testimony to be able to sit down with another creature, another human being, and say, you know what, let me share with you what story has happened, what, what has happened in my life, personally. That's a powerful testimony, and that's a powerful witness to the existence of God. Absolutely. Just a second. Yes. Do you have your hand up? Mm -hmm. Well, I was just thinking about looking at the difference between, I, I don't think, I, I think boiling it down to saying, do we take holy scriptures or we do we take man's theory mm -hmm. might put us in a bit of a precarious position because if which man's theory about the holy scriptures do we take i i think we get a pretty broad spectrum of definition of truth under the umbrella of man's theory about scripture i don't think either either one is safe without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Men aren't safe without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And just looking at Scripture without the guidance of the Holy Spirit can lead you far astray because on this very topic, there are a lot of people who take long ages, unguided evolution and Scripture and say, I believe them both. Mm -hmm. So so I think that's maybe a, a place that would be a little bit dangerous for us. I like the way Tim says, if we really understand scripture and we really understand science and we really understand what's happened to us and what we're observing, they're not in conflict. So I don't think we Correct. should be afraid or isolate out any one. Well said. One more and we need to move on. God said, come let us reason together. <clears throat> the problem is, is that we, we start out with a paradigm, no matter which which path we want to run. If we want to run the, the faith path, we start out with the premise that, you know, God said it, I believe it, such as it is. In fact, there were many other Gospels, as we know, that were not included as part of the canon. Mm -hmm. For some reason, they were not included. Why was that? Well, they weren't consistent with the rest of the, of the books that were accepted. So there was actually scientific method in terms of consistency and was there historical fact or historical consistency between the books. So we do, we, we accepted these canonized books as fact and these are inconsistent so they're rejected. But that starts with the premise that this is true. If you flip it over and you start out with the premise that there is no God, you know, or the, the Big Bang thing is what happened, you start out with that premise and you throw away everything that conflicts with it. I don't think either of those are consistent with come let us reason together. We do have to have this understanding, but we have to be willing to, to entertain challenges to it. Absolutely. We have to even be willing to entertain the challenge, could we be wrong that a God exists? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, hopefully, through the Holy Spirit, we will come to the to the rational and faith-based conclusion that no, it's not inconsistent. There, there is a God, and He is love, and all this. But we we need to be careful about our paradigms that exclude anything else that might possibly challenge. Could we be wrong? Absolutely, you're right. <clears throat> we should be always growing in our understanding, Scott. Well, I mean, this may have already been said, or but I mean, I'm going to try to use science and common sense to kind of debunk the whole theory of evolution. I mean, uh -huh. 
And it leads to a kind of sterile conclusion, which I'll get to. But the point is, is that, you know, you can come up with all these ideas about the primordial soup and a flash of lightning, input of energy required, blah, 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 to potentially create a momentary flash of light. Maybe. But at the same time, you've got to have an organ system for nutritional support. You have to have an illumination system for how do you do, deal with the metabolic waste that accumulate. You have to have a reproductive system to let that little cellular form of life regenerate the next one before you even get to all the other crazy sounding theories of how you go from that single cellular organism to more complex organisms. But forget all that and just get back to that first proposed moment flash of life, mm -hmm. which without all these other simultaneous things are impossible to sustain to the next. Right. So, right. I mean, it, it's just beyond disbelief. And so, I mean, if you just go back to that very fundamental flawed, mm -hmm. you, you're left to conclude, well, there's got to be a designer. Right. And so, I mean, that's maybe not what everybody wants to hear about how God has changed my life and all those emotional things. But to me, you can find a lot of other philosophies that change people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of, well, okay, that doesn't really prove God's existence. But if you just go back and look at what would be required for the evolutionist to, to, to successfully convince people, I don't understand how it has any traction. I don't either. And assuming for the sake of argument, that all those pieces fell into place and the cell did manage to reproduce into a second one. The stronger cell would eat the weaker cell and they'd be back to one. I mean, it's survival of the fittest. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the methodology that's put forth. So when, when there were two, there would be one and then done. Another thing for if anyone's listening is having thought of these things, you know, the whole thing about the chicken or the egg. I mean, if you just look at the egg, you've got two... And this was, this was said to me by somebody who I think is potentially a struggling atheist. I'm not sure. but And then you wonder, well, how could you be? But the point is that the egg, oh, such a simple thing. It's not so simple. I mean, because you've got to have a membrane on which the, the calcium deposits that make the hard shell can be deposited on. Both of those things had to exist at the very same time. Otherwise, you would have had a fragile calcium shell that would not protect the developing right. chick. Right. If you have the membrane, you don't have the shell. The point is they had to exist at the very same moment. And all these things just, they don't fit the evolutionist's own idea about how evolution occurs very slowly, very gradually over time. Mm -hmm. No, they, it just doesn't make sense. I concur. Yes, Karen. I think uh, evolutionists evolutionist might say you're not giving enough credit to billions of years. You don't have a concept of what a billion years is. I'm, I'm not saying that myself, but um, uh, given enough time uh, is what they would answer. And I would... It's not about how long you give it. It's about what are the statistical chances that all the things necessary happen at the same time. Because if they don't, it can't happen. That being said, I think that's a fair way of saying I personally, being enough of a scientist to understand that improbability, I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution. I understand, though, mm -hmm. that um, my, my way of thinking requires faith, but I, and I, rather than being uh, 
condemning and saying, you have more faith or yours needs faith too, to say, I don't have that much faith. And I think it's a, a winsome way maybe of, of uh, declaring my stance. And I guess also in wanting to be generous and, and caring about that person who thinks differently than me is to say, what picture of God must they have that holding to that belief structure mm-hmm. is more important and more palatable to them than believing in the God that they understand. Mm-hmm. That should be our purpose of going this exercise of trying to see things from another person's perspective is to say, how horrible must their perception of God be that they would rather hold on to this improbable faith requiring belief structure. Both well said. Um, I want to read a passage, or part of a passage from Patriarchs and Prophets. We're still in Sunday's lesson talking about uh, Christ uh, being the sustainer. There's also a theory out there that, um, I don't know the exact name of the theory, but it's basically that God started in motion, he wound up the clock, and then left it. Uh, This is a passage from uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 151. But his energy, Christ's energy, is still exerted in upholding the objects of his creation. It is not because the mechanism that has once been set in motion continues to act by its own inherent energy that the pulse beats and breath follows breath. But every breath, every pulsation of the heart is an evidence of the all-pervading care of him in whom we, quote, live and breathe and move and have our being, referencing Acts 17.28. It's not because of the inherent power that year by year the earth produces her bounties and continues her motion around the sun. The hand of God guides the planets and keeps them in position in their orderly march through the heavens. He bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them by the names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one that faileth. It's through his power the vegetation flourishes and the leaves appear and the flowers bloom. He maketh the grass to grow on the mountains, and by him the valleys are made fruitful. All the beasts of the forest seek their meat from God, and every living creature, from the smallest insect up to man, is daily dependent on his providential care. That, that, that kind of took me back, that thing that every, every time my heart, every time my ventricles contract, it's not because of some electrical system in, in my uh, in my cardiovascular system. It's because the energy that, that Christ gives us, every breath we take, every every signal from the phrenic nerve that goes to the diaphragm and causes it to contract, and sucks air into the lungs, and then expi- and then body uses the oxygen and nitrogen and everything that um, everything that takes in. This, this is all ordered by the, the, the hand of our creator every time. Something to think about. In the bottom of Sunday's lessons, it, it asks, uh, with all of this in mind, how do we understand the reality of free will and free choice? So with God, understanding the God, the sustainer, Christ our sustainer, um, well, where do free choice and free will come into being? Where where they have their place? I think the whole idea of evolution is a, and it gives good illustration of our free choice. I think sometimes, you know, we forget that there's a someone out there trying to get us to believe things that aren't true, and 
because of free choice, God can't come in and strike down the people that believe in evolution or have a misconception about Christianity. So that free choice is part of what it takes to really have a good connection with God and understand His love. Any, um, how does our concept of, um, of God's law uh, play into this? If we believe in a, an imposed law, do free choice and free will have a different, um, different place than if we believe in a natural law? Consider this passage. This is also, uh, there's a lot of patriarchs and prophets uh, in today's uh, lesson. God placed man, this is from Patriarchs and Prophets 49. God placed man under law as an indispensable condition of his very existence. He was a subject of the divine government, and there can be no government without law. Stop. What is God's government based on? Love. Love. Therefore, God's law must be based on love. The law of love. This is not the law that if you break it, I will punish you. This is the law that if you step out of harmony with the, God, the law of love, there will be consequences. In the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, etc. And there can be no government without law. God might have created man without the power to transgress his law, hence without free will. He might, have been with, he might have withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden fruit, but in that case, man would have been not a free moral agent, but a mere automaton, a robot. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would not have been voluntary, but would have been forced. There would have been no development of character. Such a course would have been contrary to God's plan in, de in dealing with the inhabitants of the other worlds. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being, and it would have sustained Satan's charge of God's arbitrary rule. It's interesting how he seemed to have this hard wiring to rebel against that sort of thing, the idea of a arbitrary imposing upon our will. And that's what Satan uses, uses that drive, that hard wiring, and turns it against mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. it, 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 once, we, once that idea is set in our mind that we're being imposed upon, we are, we are very rebellious against it. That's right. Every time I drive um, through one of those um, freeway signs that's lit up, says, you know, fasten your seatbelt, it's the law, makes me want to unbuckle my seatbelt. <laughs> okay? It's an arbitrary law. It's, I wear the seatbelt because it's safe, because it's, it's the natural, it's the safe, natural, it's part of natural law that if you're unrestrained in a moving vehicle and that moving vehicle comes to an abrupt stop, an object in motion will tend to stay in motion. Me. <laughs> But when I see, when I see, you know, click it or ticket, use your seatbelt. It's the law. I, I have this rebellious, <laughs> I, I want to undo my seatbelt. Same way with God's law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it is now that we're fallen. You don't obey it, you suffer the consequences. Wendell. I sit here and I'm, I'm uh, looking at my lesson study. Mm -hmm. And I have these things because I've gotten old. 
And I'm about to get some. It's, it's a necessary part of my life. Mm-hmm. With them, I can see much more clearly and, can, and understand a little bit better what I'm looking around at and, and trying to get at. In our fallen condition, we have fallen away from the ability of per- perception and following and whatnot. And sometimes statements like you've just read, whatever, helps focus our attention or helps focus our minds mm. on something that is true reality. Right. And without Scripture, without the Holy Spirit, whatever, we are not able to perceive what truly we are talking about here. So for someone who has a different paradigm, who has not been influenced in the same way that we have, it's impossible for, for us to be able to focus without that. Right. And the incomprehensible love of, of the Father and the Son for us, it's just, it's just that. It's incomprehensible. I think that's very well said. And on a personal note, if... I've been coming to this class for, I think, seven years now. If some of the things that I'm presenting now had been presented to me seven years ago, I would have rejected them outright because I was in a, I was in a place where the glasses I were wearing uh, didn't allow me to focus uh, on, didn't allow me to see the things that, uh, that I see now uh, that I've, and I've gone through the peer, I've gone through the cognitive dissonance of come to the realization that the things that I had been raised to believe or the things that I'd learned in school or the things I'd learned in church previous were not entirely right. And the things that I'd presented to others were not entirely right. And I hope that seven years from now, I'll be able to look back and say the same thing, that I've, I've learned even more. I think what Wendell said is really, really deeply important. Mm -hmm. And I think back to the beginning of class when you were giving us all those statistics and it just got to the point where you were giving numbers, but there was nothing in my mind that was able to go there. Yeah, you couldn't relate to it. Right. I couldn't either. I couldn't associate it with anything that I know. I think what he said is really, really important and we need to contemplate it more. The love that God has for us, the love that God is is more incomprehensible than all of those statistics mm-hmm. that you were talking to us about. Right. And, and I think that's something that we sometimes just kind of, you know, we look up at the sky at night, but if there's not somebody that comes and helps you think that through, you don't really realize what you're looking at. Right. How many of you have children in here? I don't. How many of you would give one of your children to die for some stranger's kid or for an enemy's child. I'm not seeing any hands. I think that's exactly why I'm actually, again, showing the infinite wisdom of God to use his son, not use, but to give his son freely um, is what helps us have that relatable moment that she's talking about. It, whether, no matter how, you know, we, I don't want to say dumb it down, but we have to make it just that simple for us to have that heartfelt emotion. And that, to me, is what does it, you know, that 
the idea as a parent, you know, that you could do something like that and actually understand the benefit on such an enormous scale. Right. Um, it's uh, it, it still takes you back to the incomprehensible thing, but there's that click that goes on that somehow mm-hmm. makes a difference, I think, as a human being. Thank you. Let's uh, look at Monday's lesson real quick, and then um, we'll get to uh, Eve's uh, issues on Tuesdays. Uh, Monday's lesson, uh, of course, you know, it's talking about you know God being provider, uh, Christ being the provider, uh, a generous provider. Uh, of course, God provided Adam and Eve with food and with garments of light, but have you ever considered that God provided mankind with work? for his benefit, even before his fall. Uh, many today regard work as a four-letter word, mainly, mainly because it is a four-letter word. But was this, our, was this God's original intent? The work should be shunned. Yet another passage from um, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 50. To the dwellers in Eden was committed the care of the garden to, quote, dress it and keep it. Their occupation was not wearisome, but pleasant and invigorating. God appointed labor as a blessing to man to occupy his mind, to strengthen his body, and to develop his faculties. In mental and physical activities, Adam found one of the highest pleasures of his holy existence. And when, as a result of his disobedience, he was driven from his beautiful home and forced to struggle with a stubborn soil to gain his daily bread, that very labor, although widely different from this pleasant occupation in the garden, was a safeguard against temptation and a source of happiness. Those who regard work as a curse, do we know anybody know any like that? Anybody seen the news lately? Those who regard work as a curse, attended though it be with weariness and pain, are cherishing an error. The rich often look down with contempt upon the working classes, but this is wholly at variance with God's purpose in creating man. What are the possessions of even the most wealthy in, in comparison with the heritage given to the lordly Adam? Yet Adam was not to be idle. Our creator, who understands what it is for man's happiness, appointed Adam his work. True joy of life is found only by working men and women. I think that should be a bumper sticker as well. The angels are diligent workers. They are ministers of God to the children of men. The creator has prepared no place for the stagnating practice of indolence. So, in order for God... To provide for Adam and Eve, he provided them work. How, how many? I, I routinely get uh, patients in my practice that despise work. They they hate what they do for a living if they're working at all. Um, and many of these many of these patients are making incomes with. Two commas in them. I've had several patients that made a million dollars a year or more and, and hated getting up every morning to go to work. They just detested it. And I thought, how sad to hate your work or to hate work itself. Yes? I'm going to go back one. When you ask the question, would any parent give their child or, you know, for another child? We left out a scenario. What if your child is dying 
and that your child could give another child a heart, a kidney. So would you say no to that? Oh. Was your enemy or your friends? So we left that gray area. Yeah. I think a parent would. I did that intentionally. If your child but... was going to die, you would help another, I think. Not just. Many would. Some wouldn't. Um, right, some wouldn't. But um, the, the difference being that uh, Christ was not dying. You know, when he when he said, you know, I will go, I will go and save save these people. Uh, I will go and provide a healing remedy for them. He he wasn't dying. He he was fully alive, and in fact, uh, he was. My understanding is he gave up his ability of omnipresence in order to to veil him, veil his glory with humanity, and come to Earth. So. Um, your point is well taken, but I think I think the analogy breaks down a little bit because you know, Christ wasn't dying. Christ Christ wasn't sick and dying, and then come to give came to donate humanity a kidney or a liver. Right, but I'm I'm not taking that. I'm talking when you ask the question. Oh, okay. We're talking us here in this world. We're I, talking, I'm not. I know what by means. Am I talking what? God did and what Jesus did. No. Okay. That is not even close. I'm talking if you ask the question as humans on this earth, would we not do that? But I asked it rhetorically to give us some perspective uh, on what you know, the sacrifice that God the Father made and, you know, allowing his son to, to take on humanity, to, to struggle with the two antagonistic principles uh, in his humanity and to secure a, a healing remedy for mankind. Wendell, and then in the back. Um, continue on, I guess, on that same topic, though. Um, it depends on what you have as your perspective. And, and we are broken, and, and even with the minimal amount of love that we have, we may do that. Mm-hmm. My daughter is in Africa right now, and she's in a country that is not always as stable as it should be. They're coming an upcoming election, and they're having a concern regarding whether people will be safe or not. Someone asked me last night, he said, well, what happens if your daughter gets killed or gets hurt as a result of where she is? And I have to say that, um, you know, she is doing something because of her desire to help out, present the Lord's view of love to those who are around her. Mm-hmm. And as a parent... If that's what it takes for someone somewhere else to learn who God is. If we have the perspective that there is eternity. Right. Then what's the cost? Exactly. Yeah, we tend to give myopic uh, on this earth. And you had a comment in the back. I'm drawing some connections and I'm probably backed up on like three previous questions that you've made. Maybe running down another path. That's okay. But I'm thinking the biggest problem, and this is this is no great revelation, the biggest problem is ourselves and our and our pride. When when you asked about well what what is freedom of choice and, and will considering all of this that God sustains, I think it's the freedom to pick the direction that we want to go and what we're, what paradigms we're going to use and what we think is the most important. When you gave the illustration at the beginning about the universe 
or I'm sorry, the galaxy being the football field size and our universe being one millimeter. Mm -hmm. And we think that we're so hot as we might maybe soon get to Mars. Right. That really kind of puts things in perspective. The other example that you said about driving down the highway and, you know, I'm not going to click my seatbelt because it's the law. Those things kind of tie together and tell me that we need to get past ourselves and that I am the master of my own domain. And because the law says this, I'm so big and tough and so all-important that the universe revolves around me that I'm going to choose the direction that I'm going to go. So maybe I'm drawing weird connections, but I think that's the problem is just that free will that we can choose. I am so important and I'm going to choose everything about my life. I, I think that's a great point. Brittany? I mean, we have a lot of perspective, we just really want to share something that, something that I watched last night, um, a sermon of Greg Boyd, and he was talking about um, that your whole life basically is, um, or how you see things is dependent upon the size of the frame in which you see issues in life. So it's not the size of the problem in your life that's the issue, it's the size of the frame in which you see the problem in your life. And he's talking about how, you know, People say, the older you get, the faster time goes. And the way he explained that was, well, you know, he's 55 years old, and so he has a frame of 55 years to see the last year of his life, whereas a 20-year-old has only 20 years in which a 20-year frame to see this past year in their life. So it does seem like it's gone a lot faster. It's been a smaller percentage of his entire life's frame. Right. So he said, any time that you have a problem... Try to envision yourself 50,000 years from now, sitting on the couch with Jesus, watching, you know, home videos of what you're experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. And with that 50,000-year frame that we can't even comprehend, then imagine how infinitely small the problem that you have in your life right now is. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was any city to kind of take that and put it in your life right now and try to see what you're experiencing through that size frame. I thought it was really profound. Hmm, I like that. Thanks. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Um, Some questions about God being in control. Um, Well, first of all, it's called natural evil. Um, And I had an issue with the title. I mean, is evil natural? No. Thank you. No, it isn't. Uh, it is it is part of our earth, it's part of our infection, but it's not natural. It's not natural any more than uh, men- a viral meningitis is natural. Um, it's discussing, you know, this natural evil occurs and bad things happen in nature, floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, drought, etc. Um, how do we understand these things? After all, if God is in control of creation, why would these things happen? This is a question that um, has plagued believers for millennia. Why do good things happen to bad people? What um, what sorts of insight can we give folks that have these questions? Eve, did you come up with any uh, thing profound? I don't know. I just when I look at that question, it has an assumption in it that's incorrect. Yes. Um, it, it says, if God is in control, then why? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, God is not in control. Control is against his character. 
If God was in control, Adam wouldn't have sinned. Right. God's not this, you know, master puppeteer. Um, if God was in control, Lucifer wouldn't have sinned. Right. We can go back that far. Um, so, you know, it's it's an assumption that people make, and there's you know dozens of songs about it and all of this. Yep. And it's it's wrong. You know, God is not the one who sends hurricanes. He's not the one who does these things. You know, it's we're in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. Fallen stuff will happen. Um, yeah, he not only gets credited for allowing them, but he gets blamed for causing them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And either one is an incorrect assumption. Correct. And, and yeah, what what is what is God in control of? He's in control of something. What's he in control of? Himself. Himself. Correct. So, you know, it's if we assume that that he is going to arrange things and order things, then we forget that that he's given us that free will and that free choice. It goes back to your previous question. God gives us the breath. He reigns on the just and on the unjust. All mm-hmm. of that is given to everyone. What we do with it is our choice. And, you know, as per uh, Brittany's comment on perspective, 50, 100,000 years from now, we will look back on Hurricane Sandy and we will we will be able to discern some method, some part of God's love in Hurricane Sandy. Maybe it maybe it got the attention of one soul and and turned them from the path of death to the path of life. We don't know. Maybe all the people that died in Hurricane Sandy had already made up their minds on which path that they were to choose, and they just went to sleep and they're now waiting on now waiting on. You know, the call of their creator to come forth from the grave. We don't know. Two hands and we need to wrap it up. Karen? In that statement, um, unfortunately, you've basically written off 999% of evangelical Christianity who hang on the concept that God is in control and that God's sovereign. And I might ask if it would be possible to disagree in a way that might not be quite as offensive in that by saying... What does it say about a God who, having that control, having that ability, having that sovereignty, chooses possibly, in my understanding, to limit that sovereignty um, for the greater good? What would that say about that God? And I guess I would think that that might afford them an opportunity to not just drop the, the steel gate to anything else that might be said after God's not in control. It's just a, it's just a question I might ask. One more. Um, the, I would agree that um, the problem with asking the question of why does why do good things happen to bad, uh, why do bad things happen to good people is it comes from a, a wrong assumption of God. Um, arguably, the inventor of evolution originally, or the ideas behind evolution, was Epicurus, and he wanted to get rid of the idea of the naturalistic gods. I'm sorry, is who Epicurus? Never heard of him. I haven't either. Epicurious, yes. My, my understanding is that uh, even before the flood, uh, there were theories uh, abounding that um, man evolved from something other than the hand of the creator. Uh, he, uh, anyway, he, was a, he was a Greek philosopher, and his, his idea, he, he saw the gods as naturalistic gods, like, like, Greek, like the Greek thought was, you know, that they controlled nature. And his idea was that... Uh, 
it, he wanted to get rid of the gods being um, interfering with with humanity, interfering with our lives, controlling our nature and everything. So he he thought up a, of an idea where he uh, of theodicy, basically, where God is separated from our reality, separated from nature. And unfortunately, in Christianity, Christian Christianity's view of God comes um, a great deal from Greek thought, and we see God as I do good things for God. God does good things for me. In other words, we kind of have a little bit of control over our God in what we do, and God blesses us. And um, God is so much greater than our naturalistic, um, you know, what, what we deal with in nature. That, um, and and he ha- he does have limited control over what actually can happen in our world because he's giving us free choice. And, um, you know, God doesn't, doesn't cause bad things to happen or he doesn't cause good things to happen either necessarily. You know, God can cause good things to happen. But just because good thing, a good thing happens to a bad person doesn't mean that God directly causes that to happen, you know. And just because bad things happen to good people doesn't mean that God is directly causing that to happen. Um, God is dealing with something much greater than our, than our world in, in, in showing the universe um, love. And in love for a, a creation, love for a creation that that has left him. And what, what does it say about God who's willing to, um, who's willing to take the blame when he's blamed right. for for some of these things, and who's willing to risk his character being misunderstood right. uh, in order to adequately reveal uh, the love, his loving character? What does, what does it say about how trustworthy he is? We need to we need to wrap things up. We're still dealing with a great controversy between Christ and Satan. Yeah, correct. We certainly are. Let's uh, let's close with prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for being our provider and our sustainer. Every breath we take, every meal we eat, every step we take, uh, are gifts from you. Um, and we ask your guidance today as we uh, as we use those gifts. Help us be better. Uh, ambassadors and representatives of your kingdom and your character and bring us safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.